Hello and welcome to the Star Trek Academy, a weekly podcast about the latest new episode of Star Trek. This week we're looking at Season 3, Episode 11 of Star Trek Discovery, and it's kind of funny because some episode guides out there call this episode Sukal, but some have the name The Citadel. Either way, uh, we'll look at the episode. Your two hosts are two of the Academy faculty members. I'm Dr. Michael Merrick. I'm the media guy. And I'm the philosophy guy, Dr. Rodney Cup. Our website is the Star Trek Academy.blogspot.com. And there you can find links to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And you can also find links to a plethora of podcast sites where we're also available. And we invite you to go back and listen to our podcasts about previous season three episodes of Discovery, as well as the complete first season of Lower Decks, which, by the way, premieres in several countries in January. You know, Rodney, I realized this week that this episode marks our 20th consecutive week of new Star Trek episodes, Lower Decks and Discovery. And by the end of the season, we'll have 23 straight weeks of, of new Star Trek wow. uh, by the end of the season. I don't think that's ever happened before. In past series, they always had preemptions or breaks for holidays and things. I don't know that we have ever, ever, ever had 23 straight weeks of new Star Trek ever before in the history of the franchise. And that's, that's kind of nice. Uh, and, you know, we're going through the holidays in a yep. normal year. They would take some weeks off because they figure people are doing other things due to the pandemic. More people are at home and that, and they decided to just continue straight through. And it's kind of nice to have a break from the holidays and uh, visit one of our favorite fan universes. It's a good time to be a Trekker, for sure. I guess so. However, our first official order of business in each of our episodes, after we chit chat a little bit, is a brief description of the episode. And this is a complex episode, but if you haven't seen it, there are spoilers here. And uh, with the episode summary, here's Rodney. All right. So uh, we start at the memorial service for Giorgio, and Stamets announces that they have discovered a life form aboard the Kiev. And Saru says that the marks on Dr. Ice's head in the recording were a sign not of radiation sickness, but of pregnancy. And this suggests that the life form aboard the Kiev is her descendant. So they immediately jump to the Vruban Nebula and enter it, but it's too hazardous to Discovery and its shields. So Book takes his ship in and scans the crash site and loses consciousness. He's brought back to Discovery by autopilot and receives treatment for radiation poisoning. Anyway, after analyzing Book's data, Tilly reveals that there is a breathable atmosphere inside the Kiev and only moderate levels of radiation. And she also reveals that the ship crashed on a dilithium planet. Interesting. Anyway, after receiving Vance's permission to rescue the Kelpian aboard the Kiev, Discovery jumps to a relatively safe area near the planet. Uh, Saru, Burnham, and Culber transport themselves to the Kiev. As it turns out, they have only four hours until they succumb to radiation poisoning. Tilly assumes temporary command, and Discovery jumps out of the nebula, and they plan to repair their shields in time to return to the planet and retrieve the away team. On the Kiev, they find their appearances have changed. 
Burnham looks like a trill, Culber, a Bajoran, and Saru, a human being. They discover that they are in an elaborate hollow program that has altered their appearances for the sake of the ship's lone inhabitant. They meet hollow characters along the way that exhibit varying degrees of malfunction. When they do meet the Kelpian, Saru tells him that they are from outside the program. And the Kelpian seems confused and alarmed by this. And two doors that have been barricaded suddenly burst open and the Kelpian runs away. Saru and Culber follow him. Burnham investigates the formerly barricaded room. She encounters a monster that chases her until she falls upward off a ledge. When she regains consciousness, the Kelpian is there and asks her if she is a program. And she tells him that she is. And he is excited because she is unfamiliar to him. Finally, a new program. She begins to teach him about social units. But when Burnham asks him where the exit is and how to end the hollow program, he runs away. Back on Discovery, Owosakun detects what appears to be an incoming Federation vessel. Tilly tells Bryce to hail them, but there's no response. Eventually, Tilly realizes that the incoming vessel is not Federation. It's the Viridian. Only Osira, she reasons, would want to travel to the nebula for the Dilithium and Discovery's spore drive. Once the Viridian arrives, both ships engage their cloaks. Meanwhile, Saru and Culber meet a hollow of a Kelpian village elder. A drawing on the wall indicates that the Kelpian's name is Sukal. They learn from the elder that Dr. Isa created the hollow environment to raise and protect Sukal after her death. The elder tells them that Sukal retreats to his fortress when he is afraid. Culber leaves in search of the fortress while the elder sings a lullaby to Saru. Saru then learns that Sukal is building totems to protect himself from the monster Burnham encountered. Saru meets up with Culber and they travel to the fortress. Meanwhile, Osira tells Tilly that she wants Discovery and its spore drive and her crew as leverage, but she doesn't say for what. Back on the Kiev, Saru and Culber meet up with Burnham in time to see the monster attack Sukal. This appears to destabilize the dilithium in Discovery's warp core. Stamets has to reroute power and both ships decloak. Book offers to go to the planet to retrieve the away team so that Discovery can flee. Saru calms Sukal by singing a Kelpian lullaby and both the monster and Sukal leave the area. Before Discovery can jump, armed troops from the Viridian transport to Discovery and hold the crew at gunpoint. Tentacles from the Viridian, where did those come from? Grab onto Discovery. Book contacts the away team and tells them that another burn almost happened. Culber at this time, he speculates that Sukal adapted to the surrounding dilithium and radiation in utero, which somehow gave him the power to destabilize virtually all the known galaxies, dilithium. Burnham convinces Saru to stay behind to prevent Sukal from triggering another burn, and Culber also remains behind with him. And while Book is, away, is awaiting the away team, uh, he sees Adira on the ship. What? They use Reno's badge to beam down with the medication the away team will need until Discovery returns and a dangerously radioactive Burnham 
beams aboard. Uh, while this is happening, Osira takes over Discovery's bridge. Her soldiers place a device on Stamets' head, which makes him compliant. And just as Book and Burnham emerge from the nebula, Discovery and the Viridian jump away. And Rodney, I just want to clarify one thing for our audience. When you say sure. they beamed down, that is the singular they referring to Adira. Book That's stayed right. on the ship, right? <laughs> right. That's right. So, okay. Well, good. Thank you for that summary. And as usual, first, we'll take a look at some of the individual elements. A little bit later, we'll talk about philosophy and lessons learned. All in all, I mean, there's a good story here, and there are several things that were that were really enjoyable and interesting. But I have to say that there are several things in this particular episode that didn't click with me too much. Some great scenes, but maybe of this season, maybe I'd say this is the least coherent episode. There were, for me, there were a lot of, wait, what? Why did that happen? Moments. And for me, each one was kind of a distraction from, from the story. Yeah, I agree. Uh, my experience of watching this episode was like the experiences I had watching J.J. Uh, Abrams' Star Trek movies. Things happening and you're wondering, wait a minute, how did that happen? You know, how did the Enterprise get to Kronos in five minutes? It just, you know, <laughs> things like that. Yeah. Well, uh, but, and we're going to talk about some of those things, but, but we want to start with the positives, uh, to, to, to be fair. And several points here, uh, right at the beginning of the episode, they're at the party and Stamets and Adira are talking and he tells her, you have them. And then he says that, that Adira has, has himself and, and Hugh, but I thought he was going to channel Kestra from Picard when she, she was talking with Soji and I don't remember the exact words, but in effect, she said, you know, you'd have Picard and he'd have you. I really kind of imagined that was going to happen, but that, that didn't quite, uh, didn't quite come out the same way. Kind of the same idea though. I agree. It's, there's a similarity there. Uh, one thing I picked up on was uh, the statement Burnham made to Book before she left the ship for the Kieth. He said, and this is about Saru, she said, I'm not sure he can be objective, how he'll handle it if he has to make a hard call, a painful one, one that costs him. But then she says, but that's what it means to be a captain. And given that last statement, it makes me wonder if this is foreshadowing for Tilly, uh, maybe in the next episode. And I, I'm this pure sheer speculation, but I wonder, you know, if something really bad is going to happen in the next episode, if we're going to lose a member of the bridge crew or something like that. Tilly certainly later in this episode has to has to cope with making those hard decisions, and uh, um, she ends up in kind of a no win no win scenario. You know, Tilly didn't really do that bad as captain or as uh, uh, as acting captain. The cards were really stacked against her, and she felt that obligation to wait for the away team to return. And so it's not like she could try to elude the Viridian or things like that. And she generally did speak with confidence. There are a couple of things about her interaction with Osira that we'll talk about. But I, I, I thought she did a fine job, particularly uh, as um, the first time being in command and being under a very high stress situation. Um, I agree. 
Sukal's situation reminds me a bit of the original series episode for The World is Hollow and I Have Touched the Sky. That was an episode about Enterprise encountering a generation mm -hmm. ship in which the residents have forgotten that they're in a ship and they don't know there's an outside. Well, Sukal, I guess, technically knows that there's an outside, but he doesn't really have any understanding of it. In fact, he thinks, he thinks maybe it stopped working. And presumably that's at least one of the reasons he's afraid. We'll find out more about that, I'm sure, as the story unfolds in, in future episodes. Right. But I, you know, for, for him, I mean, the, that hollow deck is his world. And, uh, yeah, like you say, he has no concept of what's on the other side of it. And while we're on the subject, by the way, of first season episodes of uh, the original series, uh, this episode reminded me of some of those episodes in which the villain or the threat turns out to be something very unexpected. Um, so you think about the Corbomite maneuver, Balok turns out to be this benevolent, diminutive humanoid who is just lonely and wants someone to talk to. Uh, think about the devil in the dark. The Horda is a mother protecting her children, not some monster, really. And uh, the Squire of Gothos, Trelane, is is uh, an unruly Yagla child. And similarly, here we find that the burn was caused not by the Emerald Chain, which is something I speculated uh, last time, or some sort of powerful, malevolent big bad, but it, this childlike Kelpian, very unexpected, and for some people disappointing, but certainly unexpected. Well, and that is a very Star Trek-like plot twist, particularly when Gene Roddenberry was actively producing episodes. Many of them had this plot twist where you think it was going one direction, and mm -hmm. then it gets overturned. Uh, and some of the examples you gave are, are good examples of it. I liked Burnham bolstering Tilly, talking about that metal burr on the on the captain's chair on the bridge. Although I have to say, I don't think it used the term burr correctly. A metal burr would be a sharp, jagged point of metal, and as we saw it, it was more of a some kind of button or lump or lump that was there. Uh, but right. but still, the the bonding and support that Burnham provided, uh, it was short a short part of the episode, but I thought it was really important that that kind of supportiveness and it, it bookends later in the episode, Osira coming in and playing mind games with Tilly. And when we get to the lessons and philosophy part, I want to talk about that a little bit more. But those were kind of two individual parts of the plot that really, that really, I think were intended to connect to each other by being kind of opposite, opposite things. I, I um, hadn't thought about that. That's interesting. I thought that Burnham pretending to be a holodeck program was just cute. I mean, it, it, it worked. It was a very appropriate thing for her to do, but it was, it was just a, a, a cute way to see the two of them interacting. Yeah, that was quick thinking on her part and uh, somewhat related to this. She seemed so much unlike Burnham <laughs> at then that it made me even more impressed with Soniqua Martin-Green's acting chops. I thought... Again, she's doing a great job. She's just killing it. You know, in a way, both of these scenes, this one with the one with Tilly and this one um, in the holodeck are, uh, well, that's true of both of them. Uh, we, we don't very often see the gentler side of Burnham. Uh, she is usually in some kind of crisis mode or, right. or she's on a mission to do something. And we don't usually see that, that softer side, but it was a very nice touch in, in the plot. 
I thought that the idea of connecting the holoprograms to Kelpian legends was an interesting thing for the program designers to do, an interesting way to, to approach it. It was on a pretty big scale, but, uh, and, and, and I imagine somehow that's gonna, that's gonna continue to be an element of the story because we saw the book and, and the quote unquote monster there. But, but I thought right. as, as just as a design, just thinking about software design and things that that basing this teaching and protecting environment on legends was was an interesting way to do things. Right. I like the way that Hugh Culber is a much stronger character this season. In the first two seasons, he was just kind of there, and yes, he had some parts to play in his relationship with Stamets, but mm -hmm. but I'm much happier with his character and the parts he plays in the stories this season. Not only that, but we're just seeing more of him, aren't we? I think we are. Yeah, I mean, he he takes on the role not just of a doctor, but of a counselor and and a role of wisdom, and so I like the way that character has developed. I also want to mention, yeah. and one of our Twitter followers uh, mentioned this, it's really interesting to see how Doug Jones translated the physicality of how he plays Saru as a Kelpian to playing Saru in human form. And many of the, the mannerisms and much of his body language is, is still there. It was very, again, you're talking about acting chops. That was, that right. was a very effective thing that he did. Yeah, I think he, he had to do that in order to make it, uh, in order to sell it. <laughs> and he couldn't just start walking around like a human being. That that wouldn't have worked. One thing that stuck out to me, it was very brief, but I, I found it captivating and immersive, that scene in which the elder sings to Saru. And we're shown Saru's memories of life on Kaminar. That may have been footage from earlier episodes, but I, I thought it did a great job of just showing us how much Saru longs for Kaminar for home. And it just made me, I, I, I just felt in a way that I, I, I was sort of on Kaminar. I, I just feel like the writers here have done a great job of world building with Kaminar. I just loved that scene uh, for those reasons. So there are some good strengths in this episode and, and of course, seeds planted that will play out over the next couple of episodes. But as I said up front, there are some downsides too and some things that to me at least just didn't make sense while I was watching. And that when that happens, it, it takes me out of what's called the willing suspension of disbelief. And, and I wanna say right now that if you listen to all of our previous podcast episodes, we are not those guys who just automatically are negative about today's Star Trek. Uh, I think that that's, that's clear from our previous episodes, but there are some issues in this discovery episode that to me are kind of hard to, to ignore. And I think we have to, we have to discuss them. Agreed. And the biggest thing for me is the hollow program can physically change the bodies of people like Saru. I mean, I guess even though it's a hollow program, 900,000 years in the future. I can imagine it somehow adding trill dots, maybe even um, the Bajoran nose ridges because they're like on the outside, but changing the, the shape of Saru's skull and even of his feet, I can't imagine how a holo program could do that. Yeah, at one point, Saru says that his heels are hitting the ground. What? I mean, I, I can under, I, it's easier to understand how a holo program might make them appear differently, but to actually alter their shape, I, I just, I don't get it. 
it feels more fantasy to me than science fiction. Short of someone, I mean, Q could do that. There are Yaglas that could do that. Remember Q made sure. Wesley a grown-up and made Data human briefly, but it's not necessary for the plot. If they had beamed down and just been themselves, it would have freed up a few seconds to talk about it, but it wouldn't have really made any different to the plot as it's played out in this episode so far. And if you look at that, if the programs really wanted Sukal to feel at home, why aren't all the characters there Kelpian that, that look like him? Yeah, I mean, the, the Kiev was a Kelpian vessel, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, so that's a mystery. And up to whatever age he was when everyone else died, four or so, he would be very familiar with Kelpians. So why do you have to make a Kelpian look human? Why toss in Trills and Bajorans? One of the characters said it was to fit the program, but humans do clearly fit in. And so why not leave Culber and Burnham the same? And Kelpians fit in, so why make a Kelpian look human? It doesn't work for me. It's it's a distracting plot point. And there isn't even any technobabble about how it's possible. Again, unless it's Q or somebody like that, and we don't have any reason to believe that that is what's what's going on here. Yeah. It just doesn't it doesn't really work in the story. And it left me going, what? What? <sighs> uh, some other things, when the, when the holo characters do flicker and they do that, to show this is an old ship and it's slowly failing. How come the background scenery doesn't flicker? Why is it only the foreground characters that that flicker? Why do we have such a huge vista of ocean and this giant fortress and the moving airborne chunks of road that you have to walk on to get there and dragons? Dragons are both in the sky and in the water. And how is that a training program for a child who's awaiting anticipated rescue. Uh, and particularly one programmed by a mom who knows she's dying and apparently has a short life expectancy. Mm -hmm. It also raises questions as to how big the holodeck is. Mm -hmm. And after years of being crashed and failing, where does the ship get all that power to have all these things going on? Again, it feels more like fantasy than fiction that has a scientific basis for it. Right. And and now that you mentioned the holodeck, uh, something I've always wondered about is it seems to me that sometimes the distance between people in a holodeck exceeds the dimensions of the holodeck. That seems to happen a lot. And I've always wondered, you know, how does that work? And I, I've just sort of told myself, oh, just forget it and enjoy the show. But uh, that's that's a longstanding question I've had about Star Trek. And that's never been discussed on screen, I don't think. I mean, fans say there's been some reference to force fields that somehow partition the holodeck. So one person is over here doing this thing and sees this background. And another person is over here doing that thing and seeing that, that background. And that you can even make the floor move almost like a moving floor so that you might, you might think you're walking, but your body is staying in the same place. Right. Uh, but, but you're right. You know, in this case, we had three or four. Well, at one point, I think we had four people doing different things, being at different places and assuming right. it's like roughly the size of a basketball gymnasium today, they'd still be pretty physically close to each other. And you wonder about that. Yeah. I'm a little worried that some of this stuff is being done just because it looks cool. Look, I've kind of wanted to see, you know, Doug Jones without the prosthetics and the makeup on, and that's so cool. And and gee, you know, the the visuals that we were getting 
in a, in this hollow deck were pretty cool, you know. And it's great to have things that look cool, but it's you, you, they've got to be believable too, you know. Here's I mean here's another one when Sukal has that confrontation with the monster in some way, shape, or form that hasn't been explained yet, Technobabble rays shoot out and they destable, slowly begins to destabilize all the dilithium on Discovery. Mm -hmm. It doesn't happen in microseconds like the burn did. Right. And the the rest of the dilithium on the planet, we, we didn't hear anything about it destabilizing, which could be no, a bad didn't. deal. That would be um, very bad. So again, you know, what is going on there? Discovery had some shields, and when I was watching, my first impression was that this idea of beaming onto the ship through shields wasn't uh, wasn't a thing anymore. After I watched again, then I saw, I mean, a couple different things. The Technobabble rays from Sukal knocked the shields out, and then they go to black alert, and if you can't jump during black alert, then you have to turn the shields off. So that's how Asira's folks got to beam on board. But there are some things there we never heard of before. We didn't really know that Discovery had this had this cloaking device. And in fact, Tilly had to ask to make sure it was installed. And this idea of you can't jump when you're cloaked, where did that come from? If Tilly didn't even mm -hmm. know it was installed, that doesn't, you know, did they test it? How do they know you can't jump? It's a, it's a MacGuffin to advance, advance the plot. The Sirius folks put this headset on Stamets that turned him into a human robot, but doesn't navigating my seal network take some intelligence and some skill? Could someone who's like a human brainwashed human robot do that? I don't know. That doesn't quite fit in with, with what we've seen. When Book goes back into the nebula, I mean, the first time he had all this radiation problems and needed to have his DNA reconstructed. And things. Yeah. This time right. when he goes in, it he doesn't seem to have any problems, even though Adira took his radiation pills. And it didn't seem like the first time he was there was that much longer than this time. So I don't know, several, several things. And I'm afraid I'm not done with Rodney. <laughs> right. I think one of the big things for me is, um, you know, I don't think any techno babble really was offered to explain how Sukal caused the burn. I mean, it might seem that there was, but I think that that was simply not explained. Now your, Michael, your quantum entanglement explanation way back in episode three, I think would help here enormously. Maybe we should just, well, it's too late now. The shows have been made. I was going to ask the writers to adopt it. But, but even then, if we adopt the quantum entanglement explanation, we still don't really know how Sukal got this ability to destabilize dilithium in the first place. I mean, just saying his cells mutated in such a way that it can destabilize the lithium, that's not an explanation. So for me, that just seems almost magical. And consequently, I'm, I'm pretty disappointed. Uh, I hope we'll one. have a better explanation in the subsequent episodes. We'll see. Sukal's body apparently acclimated to the dilithium and the subspace radiation before he was born in utero. Right. And, and note that it's subspace radiation, not regular universe. And I don't think we've ever heard of subspace radiation before. Hmm. So, so what does that mean? How could Sukal adapt in utero 
to something that's deadly to adults. Right. Maybe it's just kind of a semi-fantasy type thing, like the Fantastic Four. The Fantastic Four went up into space and the radiation changed them. Sukal had radiation and didn't die from it, but now he's he's some kind of mutant. Right. I understood Culber's theory about adaptation to mean mutation, right? That is that his cells had been were mutated as they were dividing. It still seems to me like kind of a semi-fantasy plot device. Now, maybe they'll spell it out in a way that feels more scientific in the upcoming episodes. But so far, it's, I don't know. It feels flimsy. Yeah. If if you accept that he can do that, something must have happened to him to trigger the burn as, as as a very young child. And probably something way worse than this confrontation with the monster we saw this week, because the burn went so much farther and so much faster. And mm-hmm. I'm wondering if maybe it was Vahari, although I don't know if he was old enough, but if it was Vahari, Kelpians in the future there presumably know about how you endure that and survive it, but he would have gone through it by by himself alone, there might have been holodeck characters to to commiserate with him or to take care of him, but to help him through been, it. It would have been a really scary process for him. So I wonder if that might be something to do with the burn or that or would make sense. Be, oh, there'll be something else. Uh the planet, the dilithium planet we saw, we did see big chunks out of the sphere. And unless the planet wasn't rotating at all, I think a planet with chunks out like that would have torn itself apart the rest of the way because planets do tend to rotate even mm-hmm. if they're tidally locked to a star or to a bigger planet kind of like the moon is to earth they're still rotating the moon essentially rotates once a month and uh, like mercury that's tidally locked to the sun still rotates once a year and that would have caught centripetal forces and things like that would have caused more and more parts of it to fly off Right, but didn't it look cool, Michael? Oh yeah, I mean, it the, looked cool. The, the the computer animation graphics and things we see in Star Trek, you know, have always been state of the art or beyond, and that's been true for years. You know, it's always visually rich, but sometimes I have questions about what I'm seeing. <laughs> A few other miscellaneous things. Um, the ship was apparently stranded there 125 years ago, and Sukal was born shortly after that. He appears to be no older than than middle age now. Yeah, I was wondering about that, but I mean, for all we know, Kelpians might be might have very long lifetimes, right? I mean, uh, now that they're not being cold, their natural lifespans might turn out to be very long, like Vulcans. Uh, they can live to be 200 years old, so it wouldn't be unprecedented, at least in in this science fiction universe why right? do all the other species live longer than we do that's kind of not fair well that's unfair yeah that is terribly unfair discovery apparently has a mycelial jump signature yeah. that can be scanned for and boy it's too bad the klingons didn't know about that in season one yeah. things could have turned out a lot a lot differently there yeah this for me is a very serious problem i mean apparently nobody is that we know of has developed a spore drive since the 23rd century right this spore drive is novel in the 32nd century vance didn't even know about it so why would the viridian have the technology to track them or even know how to do it it's it's just it doesn't make sense it's not consistent with you know the first season 
And even though Osiris saw the ship disappear a few episodes ago, how does she know how what to scan for? How does yeah. she, she she knew it was a spore drive when she first appeared on the screen, I think. How did yeah, she, how know, did she that? know that? Yeah. Let's see. What uh what else? Well, yeah, this thing about uh you can't jump with the cloak active. That's a plot device. That's a MacGuffin. Right. That's a pull it out of thin air because we need to make the plot work. The giant space tentacles from the Viridian that grabbed onto mm -hmm. Discovery so that when Discovery jumped away, Viridian did too. I wasn't very impressed with that. My first reaction was, where do they put them when they're not stretched out? <laughs> but I mean, maybe it's programmable matter again, but it still makes me wonder, is Osira that much of a pirate that she is constantly needing to to capture ships that way? I don't know. Yeah. So there's a lot there. <laughs> yeah. Um, let's let's go ahead and move on to the uh, any underlying meanings we're finding here or messages that the writers and producers uh, were hoping we would grasp by watching this episode. I've got a couple here. We've been talking actually for the last few podcasts about Giorgio's redemption story arc. And last week we suggested also that Giorgio was trying to put the mirror Michael Burnham through a redemption arc as it manifests in the mirror universe. But more and more, I'm thinking that redemption is the overall theme for the season because mm -hmm. we've got, we've got Giorgio and mirror Michael, we've got discovery redeeming itself in the eyes of Starfleet and the Federation because they're, they're new, they're not trusted. Plus they broke the, the, the temporal accords book redeeming himself from being associated with the Emerald chain. Right. Um, Starfleet and the Federation themselves maybe needing to redeem themselves, mm -hmm. at least from the belief, the perception that they forced the, the, the Vulcans, the Navarre to continue dangerous experiments that they think caused the burn. Right. Tilly is now going to have to redeem herself for losing her ship. And yeah. we see in the previews, she's kind of trying to do that. And Saru may need redemption too, because he lost objectivity. He was distracted. And of course, he was, he's the captain. And even though there was a reasonable reason for him to be away from the ship, the ship got lost while he was away. So, so there's redemption that's necessary too. So that's at least six different directions that we're seeing redemption playing out in in the story here right the other thing that i saw and i mentioned it briefly earlier was the mind games that osira is playing with tilly today we would say that osira is appealing to imposter syndrome the belief that i'm doing this job but i'm not really good at it i'm i'm cheating i'm just making do and some people feel that who do a great job and, and it, it's something that, that, I mean, we see in psychology and we see in our culture today. And I think that was a very interesting thing to put into this episode directed at, at a very likable character who we know is doing her best. So I think there was definitely a message there. Osira doesn't get her comeuppances yet, but uh, um, I, I think that, that that was something. And as I said, book ended with, with Michael Burnham uh, bolstering Tilly mm -hmm. before she goes up to the bridge. I think that there is a, a strong social message there. Right. I agree with everything you're saying here. And, and um, I, I myself, I had a little trouble finding themes in this episode. I'm attributing that to the fact that it's a cliffhanger. 
So maybe, you know, this next week or the week after that, that we'll have additional themes emerging or themes that we've already identified are going to be developed further as they were this week, as you showed. So, but I do have a few questions that I don't have answers for. And I think your answer to this first one was that their changed appearances on the Kiev were not necessary for the plot. Yeah. But I'm still asking that question. I mean, why make them appear different on the Kiev? I'm wondering if there's some kind of significance at a deeper level there. I want there to be. I don't want this to be a case where the writers just thought it would be cool to do that. And that's why they did it, you know? So I'm, I'm going to have that question uh, in the back of my mind and hopefully I'll find an answer to it. I'm also wondering, you know, of all the many perhaps possible explanations for the burn, why opt for this one? And I, you know, I'm hoping that they have uh, some sort of deeper reason for that. Some, some that 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 ex particular explanation has a deeper significance. So those are questions I'm still asking, and maybe I'll have answers later. <laughs> um, well, and so we'll see how this continues to play out uh, this coming week. Osiris ship and Discovery jump out. So that that makes a fine cliffhanger. But yes. I also, it occurs to me, how many times have we had a similar right. cliffhanger or a story in which the big bad takes over the good guy's ship in some past Star Trek episode? You know, how many times has Enterprise been taken over? And if I didn't try to go back and tabulate them, but 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 we have seen this kind of thing several times. Oh, uh, many times. It might be fun to go back and and list them all. There's a bunch, I'm sure. There was once when the Ferengi took over the Enterprise D, and I think Voyager got taken over once. I mean, they're, they're, it's happened before. I think a, a, a big question that will be answered in the future, too, is about the monster in the Holo program and, and what it is. Uh, I hope that there is something really, really cool and intriguing about it. The Kelpian book, I think supposed to inform that the all seeing eye has become protection. The monster from the story in the book rises from the sea covered in kelp to remind the children of Kaminar that to be truly free, they must face their deepest fear. And so long as Sukal will not face his fear, it will remain in this place as will Saru. I mean, it kind of seems like maybe the monster is a representation of Sukal's fear. But, you know, from the book, if Sukal faces his fear, I mean, what happens next? It doesn't produce a working starship. It doesn't speed up the rescue. Right. You know, what happens next? Right. I thought about this as being a kind of a Kelpian rite of passage, maybe. Maybe this is what this is in, in uh, Kelpian culture, that once uh, Sukal passes this test of facing his deepest fear, uh, maybe the program would then consider him to be free, or maybe uh, what maybe that means minimally self-sufficient, so that he'd be ready to leave the hollow deck, uh, able to take care of himself, maybe, and just walk around this the rest of the crashed ship. I don't know. It's it's not it's not clicking for me so far, but we'll right. have to see. Right, that's my theory. Anyway, <laughs> my wife has an interesting theory that mm. it's the monster that's really Sukal, the 125-year-old 25, Sukal, and that mm. the Sukal we see, the Kelpian figure we see, is the hologram. Wow, wouldn't that be an interesting twist? That's interesting. We'd have to find out why Sukal ended up being this monster form, but uh, 
you know, see, see how they would rationalize that. But I think I think that would that would be an interesting plot twist if that's if that's the way we go. I do have to say, and again, I'm sorry about it, but my final word on this episode is, I mean, there was some good character development and some cool special effects, but there were too many plot devices and MacGuffins and unnecessary complications for, for my taste. Now, next week, the previews show Osira tricking her way into Starfleet Federation headquarters. So push is certainly coming to shove and I'm wondering what's going to happen is here. Just a couple of weird possibilities is gray going to become real. I mean, become solid and somehow do something that helps save the day. What about Zora, the Zora personality Mm. in the computer is the computer, which is at least part of the time self-aware is Zora going to save the ship. You know, I was thinking about that. I mean, you know, they said in an earlier episode that Zora is, you know, taking care of the crew now that the crew is taking care of it. But I I think there's a pretty serious problem here for the writers. So if Zora is going to save the ship and the crew uh, when this sort of thing happens, then it, then it's, it's like, you know, what's at stake then? I mean, the stakes are never that serious and and thus your stories aren't very interesting. But if she doesn't, well, I'm calling Zora a she, if Zora doesn't show up, well, then that would seem to be inconsistent with what we've been told. So I feel like the writers have maybe painted themselves into a corner here. That's my worry. And the final thing I'm wondering is, uh, are all of the non-Federation fleets of species that we've met this season going to come in at the last second of the rescue, like happened at the end of last season of Discovery, mm. like happened at the end of Picard. Of course, that was just Starfleet, but you know, we've met the Trill, and maybe the Trill have some spaceships. The Navarre, you know, the the Vulcan Romulan fusion, they they presumably have have ships. Uh, the Kelpian, the Barzans, you know, these are all species that we've met. And are they going to come into the rescue at after Osira kind of takes over Starfleet headquarters? I don't know. We'll have to wait and see. We shall see. Now, according to Memory Alpha, uh, next week's episode is entitled "There Is a Tide," uh, but the original title was "The Good of the People." They so changed I'm not it sure. again. They changed yeah. it again. Jeez. I don't know what's going on with that. Okay. But um, with regard to this episode that's coming, um, we haven't gotten a description of it from CBS. But we have seen some previews that that uh, show that uh, things are getting pretty bad for Starfleet, apparently. And then after that, the final episode of the season is entitled Outside. And and that appears, I would suppose, to refer to uh, Sukal finally leaving the Kiev, I suppose. I don't know. But we shall see. Thank you for joining us this week. The Star Trek Academy podcasts about every new Star Trek episode, and you can find us at the Star Trek Academy.blogspot.com. And that site also links to several platforms for your podcast app. So we'll see you next week.